here with you this morning. We're going to be looking in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we're taking a bit of a bigger chunk this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. So we're going to finish out the chapter. John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 35. So far in this, uh, in this gospel, we've seen the prologue or the introduction to the book. We've seen, um, been introduced to John the Baptist who came to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 29, which was our last message a while back, uh, whenever our last communion was, we saw that what John bore witness of Christ, what he had to say about Jesus was, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, by this time, John the Baptist already had a following. People were coming out to see him. And John's message is, uh, those who came out to see me, I've been sent to point to him. I've been sent to point to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes to him. John baptizes Jesus. And then... Um, we find ourselves here in verse 35. It says again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, this is the second time here, he saith, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. It's about 4 p.m. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. 
And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so in this passage, we see the outset of Jesus' ministry. We see um, uh, Jesus uh, walking by John. Uh, it says here, the next day, this is, uh, uh, I think it's day three, and John says, behold the Lamb of God. So John bears witness of who Jesus is. And two followers, two people. We don't know who the second one is. We know the first one was Andrew. That's um, Peter's brother. Some speculate that the second one was John, the gospel writer, but there's no way to confirm or, uh, or uh, uh, debunk that idea. But nevertheless, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, and two of his disciples, after hearing what John says, begin to follow Christ. We also get the little detail that before Andrew got there, or before Andrew um, went to his house, he went and found his brother Peter, or Simon, and he said, We have found the Messiah. And then here comes Peter. They go and they abide or dwell with Jesus for the evening. And then it says that they get up and they went to Bethsaida. And, and John lets us know that this is the same place that, that Peter and Andrew were from. And he finds Philip, Jesus does, and he calls Philip to himself. And then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel and brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And so really what we see in this portion of the chapter is just one encounter after the next with Jesus. Okay, he begins to encounter different people. He begins to make disciples of different people. And in a lot of ways, we see here the beginnings of Jesus Christ bringing his people to himself and beginning to, it hasn't happened yet, but beginning to gather together his church one person at a time. Now, it hasn't happened, but this is the way it happens. Now, what I want to talk about, or the way I want to focus on this, as far as the message goes this morning, is just simply, um, the title is just simply Encountering Jesus. Encountering Jesus. Every single Christian will eventually, at one point or another, encounter Christ. That encounter is going to happen. That introduction will be made. And what we see here in this section, or what I want to draw out of this section, um, are some matters that we ought to consider when we're thinking about not only our own encounters with Jesus, but as we're thinking about um, uh, helping others as they encounter Christ. And so I have four points that I want to that I want to make from this section. Point number one, as far as encounters with Jesus goes, the important thing here is not how, but who. Okay, What I mean by that is the important thing that we see in this passage is that it's, there's no formulaic way that God's people or that Christ's people make their way to Him, but they all make their way to Him. It may come in one way or another. What I mean by that, and you'll see, is that God sovereignly draws people in different ways, but we're all drawn to the same person. 
So in this chapter alone, three out of the four people who come to know Jesus are brought to him through someone else. We see at the very beginning, John stood by with two of his disciples. And for the second time, he had said it the day before, but there was no real effect. The second day when he said, behold, the Lamb of God, his two disciples followed Christ. Andrew goes and gets Peter and says, we found the Messiah. And Peter is introduced to Jesus through Andrew. Philip, who was found of Jesus, goes and finds Nathanael and says, we found the one that Moses and the prophets spoke of. And when Nathanael comes to Jesus, he comes to him because Philip said, come and see. Now, there's another thing you'll notice about these three who come to Jesus, particularly uh, the two, uh, uh, Simon and Nathanael you'll notice that by the time they get to Jesus, Jesus already knows them. Andrew brings Peter and you see what Jesus says. You're Simon, but you'll be Peter. You'll be a rock. He says to Nathaniel, before Nathaniel ever says a word to him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now, one of the things that we've mentioned early on in John is that John is... He, he will weave Old Testament references throughout his gospel that if we're not careful, we will pass over and that we'll miss. And he does that. You'll see as we get through the message, he does this uh, uh, a lot in this passage. Whenever Nathaniel comes to Christ and Christ says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, it's a direct reference back to Jacob. Remember what Jacob's name meant? A supplanter, a deceiver. And while Jesus comes as the Messiah, as the true Israel, he is also calling true Israel to himself. And as he sees Nathaniel, he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. Where are you going to find that? Look throughout Old Testament history. It doesn't exist, does it? Israel is just in and out and in and out and in and out of idolatry. But Jesus says of this one who was brought to him by Philip, here's one who has a pure heart. And it's funny because Nathaniel, you would think, is a cynic. You would think he would need a rebuke, but he doesn't. He says, here's one in who there's no deceit, there's no guile. Now, I'm not going to park it there, but... Again, the greater point is that they don't all come the same way, but they all come to the same person. Uh, Jesus finds Philip without any means, but the, uh, the point here is that God is sovereign as He draws people to Himself, and He may use other people to do that, and He may not. But God is sovereign over the ends and the means. Now, I will make this observation, and it's an observation worth making. Um, no matter how here in the beginning we see what's happening, um, no matter how they come to know Jesus, we see a pattern begin at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And that is, disciples become disciplers. At the very beginning. So Philip is drawn without any other person. But you see the first thing that Philip does is he goes and gets Nathaniel. 
Now, why is that important? Um, well, before I get to that, let me make a couple of more observations here. You, as soon as these men come to know Jesus, the simplicity of their approach is just kind of profound. They go tell somebody connected to them about who Jesus is. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with, with going and, 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 and finding, you know, a stranger or whatever and, and sharing the gospel with a stranger. But from the very beginning, these men are going to men or, and, and as the disciples begin to spread out, men and women, who they are already connected to and they are telling them about who Jesus is. Or maybe I should say they are telling them about what they have found in Christ. And then you have a, a cynic like Nathaniel who says, what in the world good could ever come out of Nazareth? And the answer is just simply, come and see. You notice he doesn't fall, he doesn't, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with apologetics, but you notice he doesn't spend a whole lot of time saying, well, let's go back to this prophecy and that prophecy and this thing that Moses said and that thing that Moses said. Philip's, Philip's, whole approach to Nathaniel at the very beginning was, I found the one who Moses and the prophets spoke of. So he must have had some things in mind, but he just simply says, come and see. Come and see. And so under the heading of this encountering Jesus, it's not really how you encounter him, but who you encounter I do want to make the point that once you've encountered Christ, it's just kind of assumed in this text. It's commanded in other texts. Once you've encountered Christ, once you become a disciple of Christ, then you're expected to begin discipling others. You're expected to become a discipler. Now, again, sometimes that can sound intimidating or you can you know, wonder what in the world am I supposed to do? Again, I just want to continue to emphasize these guys did nothing special. They just gave away what they had, which wasn't that much at the time. Peter, we found the Messiah. Come and see. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Well, you know, over the last, I don't know, little while, we have seen um, decline in the church as a whole, particularly over the last 50 to 75 years, we've seen decline among primitive Baptists in our churches. And there have been a lot of people that have come up with a lot of reasons as to why that is. And some of those reasons might be legitimate. I'm not sure. But I know one thing is for sure. Among our people, one of the trends that has been just set is that our people have happily ignored the Great Commission when it comes to evangelizing and discipling as a whole for the last 50 to 75 years. And so if we want to know why the churches are declining, you know, again, some of these other theories may be, you know, they may be, maybe some legitimacy there, but there's a very simple answer as to why some of our churches are declining and our churches as a whole are declining. And that's because God will not bless disobedience and neglect. Matthew 28, 19, go evangelize, disciple, and we've said, well, God will send them here if He wants them here. 
Well, we believe in God's sovereignty, right? But God sovereignly commands His church how we ought to function. And so, again, there are some factors that are outside of our control. If you go and evangelize and seek to disciple, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a humongous influx all at once. But when God calls you to do something, you should not assume that God intends to do what He's told you to do. Okay? Now, He may, He, He intends to bless what you do, but He's not going to turn around and do it. Right? What, what would you think if, if, uh, and I'm talking to all of us, including myself here, what would you think if I said, you know, I think the Lord's called me to preach, but I typically do not look at what I'm going to preach until the, the opening hymn. And that's when I start looking for a text. And then I just go from there. You'd say, that's crazy. You know, the sad thing is, is that most churches haven't woken up to this idea that a neglect of evangelism and discipleship has killed them until they're already dead. And so this is a, this is a pattern we see from the very beginning. They're not overthinking it. They're not making it too complicated. Okay. Disciples are discipling, evangelizing and discipling. So, encountering Jesus, it's not how you get there, it's who you get to. We go through different roads. Paul had that road to Damascus. Sometimes people can get fixated on what's this process look like and how does it compare to others. And, and, you know, Christ brings us to repentance and He draws us to Himself in all kinds of different ways. The, The point is, is that we make it to Him. So, not how but who. Secondly, it's the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter after verse 38. So the two disciples are following Jesus. It says that Jesus saw them or He turned and saw them. The word saw there doesn't mean that He just happened to look at them. It means that Jesus turned around and He gazed at them. It was like it's a piercing gaze is what the... The definition of that word is he saw, he, he, he gazed, he, he, he pierced them with his gaze and he said, what seek ye? What are you seeking? What are you seeking? You know, as we're talking about encountering Jesus, we're, we're obviously on one level thinking about this from an evangelistic standpoint. But we're also thinking about this from just a day to day living in fellowship with Christ kind of standpoint as well. So you should think about it as both. What are you seeking whenever it comes to Christ? There's plenty of alternatives out there. We can take Jesus and we can distort Him in all kinds of different ways. We can seek Jesus as an add-on to everything else we've already got going. I'll work to fit Jesus into my busy schedule when it's convenient. Because that would be good. That would be good. We're going to look in a minute in our next section at at what it is that these disciples found and, and we'll see just how ridiculous it is that these would be the things that we would come to Jesus for or that we would respond to Him in these kinds of ways. But Jesus is an add-on. 
It'll just make my good life, already good life, just a little bit better. Jesus is a fallback. So if my plan A doesn't work, then I'll get serious about Christ. I've already charted my course. I already know what I'm interested in. This this is very easy to fall into, particularly whenever we become young adults. It can happen at any time, but you get serious about school or you get serious about a career or you get serious about starting a new family. You get serious about all kinds of different things. And unintentionally, but surely, Jesus becomes your fallback. If plan A goes to pot, then I'll get serious about serving Christ. What about Jesus as janitor? Jesus as janitor. One of those scenarios where we only need Jesus when there's a cleanup on aisle one of our life. I just need Jesus to fix all my messes. Now, does Christ heal and does Christ redeem? Yes. But Christ is not pushing around a mop bucket hoping that you'll ask Him to clean something up for you. And you know, the world that we live in, the quote-unquote Christian world, many times paints that portrait. Our selfish hearts can begin to relate to Jesus in this way. It's kind of close to the fallback, but you know, I don't really get serious about Christ. I don't really need Him unless there's a big mess and I need help. What about Jesus as a good luck charm? There are times we can approach Jesus and we can, we can uh, seek to uh, have some semblance of fellowship with Christ because we just believe as long as I pray, as long as I read the Bible, as long as I go to church, Jesus will give me what I want. Now, if you're just listening to me talk, that's easily detected and you realize that's not true. But our hearts are deceptive. And we can fall into that kind of mindset pretty quick. Jesus is my good luck charm. What about Jesus as my therapist? Now, that may sound weird. You, you know I'm an advocate of biblical counseling, but this is what I mean here. I'm talking about the world's form of therapy. Jesus does not judge my lack of commitment or faithfulness to Him. Because Jesus realizes that my life has been so difficult, I couldn't possibly be expected to live for anyone but myself. He doesn't judge me. He doesn't judge me. He doesn't demand anything of me. He doesn't even expect anything of me. I just lay on the couch and Jesus reaffirms His unconditional positive regard without expecting a single thing. Have you ever approached Jesus that way? You ever thought of Him that way? If we're honest, we can probably see all five of these weave in and out of the ways that we've approached Christ in the past. The overall point that I want to make here and that this passage makes here is that to come to Jesus this way is to not come to Him at all. It's to come to a figment of your imagination. It's to come to some sort of a self-help figure that you've created for yourself. Because the truth about Jesus is, is that He is one who's been given a name above every other name. He is one who hasn't come to be your bellboy, but He has come to be your king and to reign over you. 
And as these disciples leave John and they come to Jesus, his question for them is, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Maybe your mind has already gone here, but Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Christ command here, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Here, I just obviously just want to get this point. Seek ye first. Make your first priority above anything else. Seek the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that I'm seeking God's will I'm seeking God's ways and I'm seeking God's glory above anything else. So he has called me to reflect his character. So I want to do that. He has united me to his people in his church and has said that he wants to be glorified through his body. And so I want to do that. He has called me to prioritize seeking spiritual things above earthly things. And so I want to do that. And so forth and so on. We could, we could go through and, and talk about specifics. But seeking God's kingdom, God's glory above anything else and everything else. There's three questions that Jesus gives earlier in this chapter. They're not really questions He gives, but statements that are made meant to make us ask these questions. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so the question is, if we're taking this as a diagnostic type um, reality, what are we treasuring? What are you treasuring? He goes on in verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Question number two is where, where is your focus? Where are we focusing? What is, what, what's consuming our focus? Verse 24, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and, desi- and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Question number three is, who are you serving? Now, sometimes people can take this sort of thing and really make it kind of weird to where if you're treasuring Christ, if you're focused on God's kingdom, if you're serving Christ, then you essentially become, you know, you've heard it said, somebody's so heavenly minded, they're no, they're of no earthly good. You know, so they're irresponsible whenever it comes to matters of uh, living in day-to-day life. Well, that's not the way this works. If you're treasuring Christ, then you're gonna you're gonna be striving 
to be a, a, an excellent spouse, an excellent employee, an excellent employer, an excellent child, an excellent fill-in-the-blank. You're, you're going to be seeking to glorify God in the midst of your day-to-day life. But it's all because of this one priority that you have. I'm treasuring the kingdom. I'm treasuring His glory. I'm treasuring His mercy that I've received. And He's called me in light of that to serve and live in this way. Well, Jesus is asking as these men, these two disciples that leave John to follow Him, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Well, it's a question we all have to wrestle with. There's no formulaic answer. There's no way for me to answer for you or for you to answer for me. But it's a question that Jesus would have us ponder. What are we seeking? Next, in, um, back in John chapter 1, It says in verse 38, what we just covered, Jesus turned and he, he um, gazed at them with a piercing gaze. And he said, what seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? And he said unto them, come and see, come and see. So we said, first of all, as far as encountering Christ, it doesn't matter how, it's more along, the, the, the important thing is who it is that you encounter. Secondly, the heart of the matter is, what are you seeking? Third, is that it must be a personal encounter. Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. It's a, it's a personal thing. You'll notice in verse 39, it says that they came and they saw where he dwelt and they abode with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. It just simply means that they came and personally dwelt with Jesus in face to face fellowship. This is something that happens as Christ takes a heart and makes it willing to come. John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 35, says, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you have seen me and believe not, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. It's this reality that I want to point at here, This or I want to highlight here, is this reality that those who the Father have given to Christ, those whom the Spirit draw to Christ, they are willingly coming to Christ in a personal way. Psalm 110 verse 3, Their hearts have been made willing in the day of His power. It's a personal thing here. Matthew eleven twenty eight. They've they've heard the call. Jesus says, "Come to me." 
And they do. You see, an encounter with Christ is an encounter with a person. Not a theory, not a concept, not an institution. A person. Jesus says in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life that they might know. This is an experiential knowledge. And so we think about this in contrast. As important as the church of God is, the church is no substitute for knowing Jesus. There's, there's, there's many reasons that you might enjoy being part of or at least being in fellowship with the church that have nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe you love acapella singing. That's fine. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's no substitute for knowing Jesus. Maybe you love the simplicity of worship and that's good and fine. Maybe you love the fact that there's a, there's a family atmosphere and, and the, the closeness of the fellowship and the care and all those things are good, but it's not a substitute for knowing Jesus Christ. The church of God never saved a single person. Christ did. And our affections for the church apart from our knowledge of and love for Jesus Christ aren't an indication of anything but preference. Secondly, appreciating doctrinal fidelity and consistency is no substitute for knowing Jesus. It's just not. The fact that you've come to understand and you enjoy and you appreciate Doctrinal consistency, doctrinal fidelity. You know what doctrine is meant to do, don't you? It, it, it's meant to open up your knowledge and deepen your knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. It was never meant to be a substitute for who Jesus is. Jesus is not a concept, He's a person. Convincing yourself that at least you're not a hypocrite is no substitute for knowing Jesus. Okay? And, and, and that's common. We can do that. Especially if you're an unbeliever this morning. But you can even do it as a believer at times. Just convincing yourself that you know what? At least I'm not a hypocrite. Well, that's fine. Probably not true, but that's fine. But it's no substitute for knowing Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. Now, what are we supposed to come and see? Well, it's, it's, it's worth looking at this section to see what did His early disciples, what did they come and see? Now, this is easy to miss if we're not careful. But in this section... There are at least nine references to Old Testament realities about Jesus that come to the forefront. And so we're going to look at those. 
Um, the first thing we see in John chapter 1, verse 35, again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold, the Lamb of God. Come and see what? Well, come and see the Lamb of God. Come and see the atonement for sin. In our last section, when we talked about what are you seeking, you know, Jesus is an add-on, Jesus is a fallback, Jesus is a good luck charm, Jesus is a therapist, and so forth. Okay. These, these are the counters to that. These are the things that if, if, if the Lord is drawing you to Christ, I'm not saying all of these at one time, but these are the things that you're going to be seeking and these are the things you're going to be seeing as you come to Him. Come and see the Lamb, the atonement for sin. And so here's the question. As you look at Jesus, have you found comfort for the burden of your sin? You know, we say it, I say it a good bit because it's a common misconception. The fact that you feel guilty doesn't mean you're converted. The fact that you found comfort in Jesus Christ means you've been converted. Okay, it's about Him. Not about you. In the same way that we were talking about with David in the last psalm, he's in a bad circumstance, but he is not consumed with himself. He's focused on the Lord and what the Lord is doing and what the Lord has done. And so as we think about atonement for sin, the question for us is have we found relief? Have we found comfort? Have we found the righteousness of Jesus Christ to alleviate our burden of guilt. Now, this is not a once and for all thing. It's something that we have to wrestle with and we have to go back again and again and again. But do we see it as sufficient? Do we see it as lacking? What about John one thirty seven? John one thirty seven um, says, And the two disciples heard Him speak and they followed Jesus. Now, this is a... Deuteronomy 18.15 on display. You remember Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that one of these days the Lord was going to raise up a prophet and him ye shall hear. We see that happening right here. Jesus begins His earthly ministry. He speaks and they follow. And so what does it mean to come and see? Well, you come and you see the prophet who speaks and who will be heard. So question number two is, are you hearing? Are you hearing? Have you been given ears to hear is another way to ask, is another way to ask that question. When Christ speaks, do you hear it? I'm talking about as you read his word. I'm not asking do you have a mystical encounter. Does it mean anything to you? Do you understand what's being said? Number three, whenever they come to him, they come to him and they call him rabbi, verse 38, which is to be interpreted master or teacher. Jesus says, come and see. 
Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see what? Come and see wisdom personified. Proverbs says, I was there in the beginning. It was by me that the worlds were made. The question is, are you learning? Are you learning? What about verse 41? He first finds his brother, this is Andrew, he first finds his brother Simon, and he says to him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. The anointed one. The deliverer of Israel, or we would say the deliverer or the savior of God's people. He goes to Peter or he goes to Simon and and he says, come and see God's anointed savior. The question for us is, are you hoping? Have you placed your hopes there? Now again, on all of these things, uh, in, in some way you could misunderstand what I'm saying and, 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 and take this as if, have you once and for all done this and has it stuck with you forever where you've never had any other doubts? That's not the question. The question is, do you see the Savior as one who is worthy for you to place your hopes in? And then, are you wrestling daily to place your hopes there? Over and above all the false messiahs that the world would lay out and offer that would draw for your hopes. Fifth, verse 45, Philip finds Nathanael and he says unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. I'm sorry, the son of Joseph. What Philip says here is come and see the anticipation of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament scriptures were testifying of this one. Come and see, come and see. The question for us is, are you believing? Are we believing what the scriptures have to say about Christ? That's what Peter, I'm sorry, that's what Philip is asking Nathaniel to do. As Nathaniel approaches Christ and then as Nathaniel makes his confession about Christ, that's what he's saying. Far from some figment of Nathaniel's, of Nathaniel's imagination that he just conjured up on his own and said, yes, this is the one. This is my God. This is my God. No, he says, this is the God that the Old Testament has been talking about. And he's here. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered and he said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the Son of God. Come and see the incarnate Son of God. This is not just an ordinary man. He is a man, but he was the one who was with God and who was God from all eternity. The question is, are you believing? Is that too much for you? Or maybe the question is, is that just a dry, insignificant fact for you? You realize when you come to church, you're going to hear something about it, but, you know, who cares? The Braves are playing in a couple of hours. 
I'm not just picking on sports folks, but anything else that would get our attention over and above this, this reality that we have come to know the one who was from all eternity. And we say, eh, not that big a deal. Verse 49, Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. Are you seeing how this passage is just loaded with these Old Testament references to who Christ is and what they were looking for from the Old Testament? And how that ought to help inf- help us inform uh, how we're looking and understanding at what these first century Christians were seeing and what we ought to be seeing as we look at Christ? He's the King of Israel. Come and see the King of Kings. And again, the question is, Are you bowing the knee in submission? So again, Christ is not meant to be your add-on. He's meant to be your king. He's not meant to be your plan B. He's meant to be your king. Christ was never meant to be your good luck charm or your janitor or any of these other things. He is the king of kings. Number eight. In verse 51, as he, uh, we're getting this a bit out of order, but in verse 51, whenever Nathaniel believes and Jesus says, you believe because I told you I saw you, he essentially says, you haven't seen anything yet. And he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is a reference back to Genesis 28, 12. Jacob's ladder was a ladder that he saw and the angels were, it was a ladder that, that connected heaven to earth and the angels were, were going up and down from that ladder. And what Jesus is saying here is that I am that ladder. I am the mediator between heaven and earth. I am the one by whom heavenly blessings flow down to God's people on earth. If you receive anything from the Father, you receive it through me. If you receive any heavenly blessings, it comes down through me. Nathaniel, he says, you haven't seen anything yet. The fact that I saw you under the fig tree is nothing compared to the fact that I am the conduit by which the Father is going to send every spiritual blessing in heavenly places to His people in Christ. Come and see the ladder, the mediator between heaven and earth. The question is, Hebrews chapter 4, are you approaching the throne of grace? Do you believe those provisions are there? Do you believe that your high priest, that your mediator is touched with the feelings of your infirmities, that he can give help in your time of need? Are you approaching? Come and see. Come and see. And then ninth, this is at the end of verse 51, When Jesus says, you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Upon the Son of Man. Hopefully some of your minds are already starting to ding Daniel. Daniel, chapter 7. All these kingdoms that are brought up, these beasts that represent the kingdoms of this world, 
And then the scene changes. And you remember the Son of Man is brought into the clouds. What are, what are we to be thinking about here? When he refers to himself as the Son of Man, we say, come and see the enthroned Christ who's making his enemies his footstool. Come and see. Come and see. This is what Daniel was talking about. And it's here. He's here. Now, at this point, as far as the Gospel of John goes, we would say, come and see the one who will make his enemies his footstool. There's still a, a, a experiential sense in which that hasn't happened for us, but as far as the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, uh trying to think of the right word here, as far as the death blow that's already happened on the cross. And in a real way, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on His throne and is practically right now in the process of making His enemies His footstool. It hasn't come to completion yet, at least not in a practical way. But we're coming to see the One who has defeated death and the grave and whose kingdom is swallowing up every other kingdom. And his inauguration day is coming. Come and see. Come and see. And so the question is, are you worshiping? Are you worshiping? Do you see this one? And remember, worship is just a value statement. Do you see this one who's, who's high and lifted up and exalted above everyone else? We've already called him the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The question is not, do you enjoy being around people who have? The question is, have you? When it comes to the kingdom of God, we all enter in one at a time. I can't enter in for you and you can't enter in for me. And so Christ says here, come and see. Come and see. It's not how you get there, it's who you get to. Um, we're getting my second point now. It's the, uh, the heart of the matter, what are we seeking? And then it's, uh, it must be personal. Come and see, come and see. And then lastly, and this is what we always do, we run out of time when it comes to our last point here, but lastly, uh, we consider what we're seeking. We consider the fact that Christ says, come and see in a personal way. Lastly, you must count the cost. You must count the cost. This is not a sentimental thing. It's not a thing where we say, granddad did it and grandma did it and mom and dad did it and that's just part of who we are, you know. That little old church that we love so well. Okay? Nothing wrong with that song, but what we're talking about when we're talking about this is it's not sentimentality. You got to count the cost because it's going to cost you. And Jesus is going to be very clear that it's going to cost you everything you have, including yourself. Look in Luke chapter 9.
Luke chapter 9, verse 23. says, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be a castaway? And I just want to stop there. Jesus says, if you would follow me, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me that way. The invitation is, come to me and die to self. Come to me and die to self. Take up your cross. It's just a way, that's just a way that in, in Jesus' day they would have understood that to mean crucify or mortify yourself. Put yourself to death. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about your agenda. Okay, we're talking about what you live for, what you're pursuing, what you're seeking. We're talking about put your, your self-sufficiency, your self-dependency to death. Put your self-exalting uh, mindset to death. Put your independent attitude to death. Jesus says, if you would follow me, you can't simultaneously follow your heart. And so something has to happen. That heart has to be put to death. Notice he says, this has to happen daily. It's not a once and for all thing. We don't just make a one decision and this is uh, we're done with it for the rest of our lives. Jesus says, if you would follow me, you must do battle with yourself on a daily basis. And you must put to death anything and everything that would get in your way of serving me. Your dreams, your aspirations, your preferences, your natural dispositions, all those things that are hindering your service to Christ must be crucified. Now that's a pretty sobering call, isn't it? It's Now it, it doesn't fall outside of these boundaries, but it's far different than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, He does, but it's wonderful to Him. It may not seem wonderful to you because God's wonderful plan for your life is to eradicate you and to make you more like Him. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 Again, these are hard statements. Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? So here Jesus is saying, again, this is, uh, he's making a point here. He's talking in a figurative way. He's saying, if you're not willing 
to sacrifice everything that would stand in the way of your service to me, including your closest relationships, you're not worthy of being my disciple. Now, the Jews knew what that was going to mean. Many of these men and women came out of Judaism to follow Christ. And when they did that, they were done as far as their families were concerned, as far as their loved ones were concerned. They were ostracized. That happens today in many parts of the world. The point that Jesus is making again here is that if you're not willing to sacrifice everything for me, then you're not willing to come at, you're not worthy to come after me and be called my disciple. That's a hard saying, isn't it? I mean, that should make all of us stop and think. It should be a convicting word. But we should not water it down to try to make it say something it doesn't say so that we're more comfortable where we're sitting this morning. He means what he says. And we ought to count the cost. Last, see an example of this, and then we'll be done. Luke chapter 18. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Verse 18, he asks him, what, does, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, I'm, I'm summarizing. He, he says, uh, you, know, you know the commandments. Do those. And the rich young ruler says, I've done all of those from my youth up. And in verse 22, it says, Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when he heard this, that's the rich young ruler, when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I want to stop there for just a minute. You know from some of the other synoptic gospels that the, the, the rich young ruler here walks away sorrowful. And if we're not careful, we'll misunderstand what the criticism is. He's not criticized because he has money. He's criticized because money has him. He's not willing to depart from it. Maybe we should say it this way. He has considered his money more important than Christ. We could even go a little further based on the question that he's asking. He has considered his money more important than eternal life. You remember the question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus boils it all down to sell all that you have, give to the poor and follow me. And even though he walks away sorrowful, the conclusion that he comes to is, it's not worth it. I've counted the cost, and I'm not willing to part ways with this in order to have this. Again, I go here, and we should all be asking ourselves whether it's money or something else, 
does something have me? What am I, what am I unwilling to part with? What am I unwilling to give up for Christ's sake? What's standing in the way of my service and fellowship to Christ that I'm unwilling to part with? Well, verses 28 through 30 give us the second half of this reality, and we'll be finished after this. Verse 28 says, Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come everlasting life. Jesus says, come to me and die. Forsake all. And then he says, those who are willing to do that will receive far more than they've ever given up in this life and in the world to come. And so encountering Christ, encountering Christ, it's not how you get there, it's who you encounter. question is, as we consider Christ, what is it that we're seeking? It must be personal. We're coming, we're seeing, we're wrestling. Then we have to count the cost. Because when you hear it from Jesus' mouth, it will cost you everything you have, potentially. You must be willing to part with it all. But in turn you'll be given more than you could have ever dreamed. And those of you here who have been walking with Christ know that to be true. You've lost some things and you've gained a whole lot more than you lost. And so, may God bless us to ponder these things as we think about encountering Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You. Again, we thank You for Your Word. It is a light unto our path. Um, Lord, we would have no idea about any of these things had You not revealed them to us in Your Word. How to approach You, how to think through any of these types of things. Father, we wouldn't know what to count. And we certainly wouldn't know the promise that as we forsake all for You, You give us far more than we could ever give up. And so I pray You would bless us to see You for who You are. I pray that You would bless us to seek You for who You are. And I pray that You would bless us to find You worthy of every sacrifice that is necessary for our fellowship with You and our coming to You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.